Who in the audience is familiar with the Immigration Reform Act of 1965, also known as Hart Seller, and could maybe describe it in a sentence or two? Show of hands? Yeah, a number of hands going up there. Okay, who in the audience knows of the Immigration Reform Act of 1990 that was signed into law by George H. Bush and could talk a little bit about it. A couple of people, uh, less. Well, a lot of people are very familiar with the Hart-Seller Act because it noticeably changed how we, immigration policy in a very significant way. Uh, it had a lot of unintended consequences. One of those, you know, it was attempting to solve the diversity issue because people like my mother who came from Ireland in 1952 came from Northern Europe, so what they wanted to do was open it up to the rest of the world. And that gave us things like country caps, so no country could do more than 7% you know, for green cards or family-based green cards. Now the problem is, it led the, the unintended, unintended consequence of it was it, read, it led to much more migration. So when my mother came here in 1952, they let out a total of 178,000 green cards. Last year, they let out about 1.2 million. Significant increase. Now, Immigration Reform Act of 1990, that was designed to solve a problem. It was based, all predicated on a absolute rubbish uh, study done by the National Science Foundation that said, oh, in the 1980s, that, oh my God, we're going to have a shortage of STEM workers, science, technology, engineering, and math. We're going to be short 500,000 people in these occupations, and we have to do something radical to chain, turn it around. And the solution was the Immigration Reform Act of 1990. And the proposal was to import STEM workers from abroad. Now, before I really get into the act itself, uh, we need to look at this on, the ba on a backdrop of globalization and neoliberalism. Now, everyone's probably familiar with the North American Free Trade Agreement, GATT, General Agreement on T Tax and Tariffs, World Trade Organization. You know, the rubbish they told us back in the early 90s was there are jobs, these good middle-class manufacturing jobs don't have an economic right to exist. Absolute rubbish. It hollowed out our manufacturing base and left us you know, to the predatory countries like China and others. Well, neoliberalism is this mindset that what you want to be able to do, what our elites want to be able to do, is move uninhibited people and capital across international borders. So that's where we get things like the Immigration Reform Act of 1990. And it's all about supply and demand. Uh, uh, for those of you who watched uh, the speech by Governor DeSantis last night, he said something that I think was really poignant with regard to immigration. He said, both illegal and mass immigration are fundamentally not conducive to a stable society. And that's what we're seeing today. So uh, we have this study that was done in the 80s decrying that we were going to have need all these STEM workers. So. You know, the thing is this, what they failed, the, the framers of that or the authors of that study failed to understand is that we live in a market economy. In a market economy, there are no long-term labor shortages. Why? 
because it's supply and demand. If there is a high demand to fill a position, employers are going to pay more money. They're going to give more benefits. Workers in those positions will be less job insecure. They will go to college, as they did in the 80s, and learn computer science, mathematics, engineering. You know, that's where we went from. I remember in 1982, the Wang system I was on, we thought we were doing great with 370 kilo, key, uh, was it, kilobytes of data storage. <laughs> and then by 1990, we all had a Macintosh on our desk. Uh, so what happened was Americans responded and they started going into these fields. Now, <clears throat> this is the issue. There is no labor shortage, but to justify bringing in foreign workers on these employment visa programs that I'll get in a minute to, is they claim there's a labor shortage. And I will tell you definitively there is not, because last year, 36% of the degrees that were given out for bachelors, for, on the bachelor level, were given to STEM, 36% to STEM degrees. However, only 14% of those graduates went into STEM fields. Smaller number went into STEM-related fields, but a lot more went into non-STEM-related fields. Question is, what are the barriers to entry there? Uh, also, when you look at the last three years, a labor study has shown that although there has been a nominal increase in wages, in computer sciences, in math, when you adjust for inflation, Wages are actually down 0.4%. How can this be in an area where there's so much demand for workers? So <clears throat> let's get into that right now. The Immigration Reform Act of 1990, it created two types of visas, one skilled, the other unskilled. On the unskilled side, it created the H-2B visa. Now, these are seasonal workers, non-agriculture, so if you're at a resort this summer and everyone's speaking Serbo-Croatian and they're not college kids on vacation earning money for college, that's this visa. The J-1 visa, which is ostensibly a cultural exchange visa. Uh, I like to call it the au pair visa because <laughs> it's how our elites get their au pairs. But interestingly enough, last year, 4,300 foreign trained physicians came to the U.S received residency positions paid for by the taxpayer at U.S. teaching colleges, where at the same time, 1,300 graduates of U.S. medical schools, people who graduated in good standing, did not get residency positions at U.S. teaching hospitals. Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know, uh, if you graduate college, you have a, you're a doctor, and you don't get a residency, you will never get a license. And if you don't get a license, you will never practice medicine. I don't know of a job outside of medicine that will allow you to pay back those kind of student loans. So the skilled side of the house, they created the H-1B visa. And this allows employers to temporarily employ foreign workers in specialty occupations like finance, computer science. And it requires someone have at least a bachelor's degree and we let out about 85,000 of those a year. Now, universities, nonprofits, and government agencies are exempt from that cap. So we bring in about 120,000 H-1B visa workers a year. 
Interestingly enough, 70% of those, and over 70%, come from just one country. And that one country is India. And we'll get into that a little later. There's the O visa. This is the Einstein visa, the genius visa. This is given to people of extraordinary talent and achievement. Uh, if you won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry, guess what? You're probably going to get an O visa. And there are no caps. There's just caps on natural talent. <laughs> And then there's the L1 visa. This is an intercompany transfer. So if you're working for IBM in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and IBM wants to move you to New York City, they file for an L1 and they move you. But the neat thing is they can pay you what they were paying you in Vancouver, British Columbia. So <laughs> let's get into the H1B visa program because that's where the real harm is being done to American workers. And let's do a little background about the workers coming over and the visa. So the H-1B visa program, number one, it doesn't require that employers prove they've searched for and tried to find qualified Americans for that position. They're not even looking at the immigrant coming in. They're saying, we have this position. We're filing the, LC, the labor condition application for it and putting it out there. Now. So this is weird because in the unskilled H-2A and H-2B, they have to demonstrate that they went out and tried to find an American. Also, the H-1B visa holders, legal status is tied to the employer and the employer alone. So if they don't want to work a job, the employer fires them, they're subject to be deported. Uh, so in light of that, Employee, these employees can, you know, look forward to the, the employers like because, you know, they have an employee that's going to be pretty compliant. Now, the reason that they're compliant is not just that they're here on an H-1B visa. The H-1B visa is unique in that it's a dual intent visa. So someone might come here temporarily, but their employer can apply for a an, uh, a, green, a green card for them, which is a pathway to citizenship. So what happens is, now for, as I mentioned, their country caps because of the Immigration Reform Act of 1965. And if your employer, for anyone outside of India that applies for a green card for you, we're looking at, you know, two months, two years total that you'll be in that, waiting for that green card. In the case of India, because of the country caps, this delay can be 10 years. So they have you for three years, then maybe another three years to extend your H-1B visa, and then maybe as much as another 10 years <laughs> to have you there at that company. It is indentured servitude. Years ago, I was at a uh, tech transfer, tech transfer uh, symposium, and a guy, when he was describing tech transfer, how it's done, he says, we call it sneaker net. If you work at company A, you go over to company B, you take everything in your head with you. This is an effective way to defend uh, a company's intellectual property as well as its markets. It's essentially a monopoly. Now, the real harm is done because uh, there are companies, consulting firms like Tata, Consultancy Services, Infosys, HCL, uh, the non-Indian ones are like my old alma mater, Ernst & Young, Capgemini, Deloitte. They file, like last year, over 300,000 H-1B visa applications were filed. 
else, or no, well, labor condition applications, be specific there. Now, it's a lottery on who gets it. So there's 85,000, 300 some. Now you would think it would be done on merit, but it's not. So it's a lottery. That, so what happens is the consulting firms push out lots of applications, they get lots of H-1B visas in, and they love it because they will lease these employees to a client and it's labor arbitrage and they'll pocket the profit they make. Employers love it because like here in Florida, in the case of Walt Disney, the, in, the, they outsourced their entire IT department to an Indian-based consulting firm that was H-1B visa dependent. That's the loophole. They weren't sponsoring an H-1B and replacing an American. They simply outsourced it all to an H-1B visa dependent firm. And, you know, the, the companies love it. They don't have to pay uh, W-2 employees, don't do the benefits, they don't have to do the, uh, uh, all the other things that go with having an employee. And it doesn't work out well. It doesn't work out well for the employees. It doesn't work out well for the country. For instance, we found out that Boeing had outsourced all of its software development to a company called HCL that for the 737 MAX. Well, when they started flying, falling out of the sky, some of the old retired senior software engineers went through, examined the code, and found it to be really bad because the way the H-1B visa ultimately works is one, they do the knowledge transfer with the workers here in the US, and ultimately, that work is offshore to a low-rent country. For instance, India, in, uh, with IBM, they have more employees in India than the rest of the world. So all of these back office operations are outsourced there, and you know it's beyond labor arbitrage. So in the case of HCL, they're not paying their software developers 85 an hour, they're paying them $6 an hour. And you get what you pay for. And <laughs> I've been talking about the H-1B visa program. I know I'm running out of time. Uh, Let's talk about optional practical training. Uh, OPT is not a visa, it's an employment authorization document. It wasn't created by Congress, it was created through the lobbying of people like uh, Michael Ga of, of Bill Gates and the universities, and essentially if someone comes here to study on an F1 student visa and you get a STEM master's degree or a STEM PhD, you can get a three-year work authorization. Now, that's great because universities love it because they'll get people that will come here not to study, but to get a pathway to citizenship. They'll get a work authorization here in the US. Now, <laughs> the fun part is employers love it too because they don't have to pay FICA or Social Security taxes on an OPT hire, and guess what? We had talked about one of the problems with the H-1B visa or the low prevailing wages that they're paid. There is no prevailing wage for OPT. It's a practical training program so the employer could pay them nothing. And the hope is they will work for that employer for a few years, the employer will sponsor them for an H-1B visa and the pathway to citizenship begins. It's really, and ladies and gentlemen, there are more people here on OPT than there are on H-1B visa now. Um, 
I think the, well, I've got a few minutes left, I think. Two minutes left, just some factoids. Roughly 70% of H-1B visa recipients every year are from Indian nationals, 13% are from China. Outsourcing firms make up to half of the top 30 H-1B visa employers. 60% of H-1B positions certified by the U.S. Department of Labor are assigned wage levels well below the median wage for the occupation. The majority of the H-1B visas are issued for computer software occupations. Majority are for ordinary IT jobs. In other words, these are very ordinary workers. These are not the high-skilled workers. And we know this because the American workers had to train the replacement. In the case of Northeast Utilities, it was tragic. I did a podcast with the last American out the door, and he said, they, we were all told we were going to get fired, and we had to train, train, train our replacements. Instead of six months, it actually took a year. But that firm, that Indian-based H-1B visa-dependent firm, they had to fire a year later because they couldn't do the work. And then they brought on another one, and they had to fire them too. <laughs> so, you know, ultimately, what we're seeing is, you know, how, a lot of harm being done to American workers. However, a lot of harm is being done to the country. Because where this is impacting us on the national level is innovation and productivity. I spoke with the, a director at a Fortune 200 IT manufacturing company. I expected a lot of pushback. And he said to me, you know, Kev, you're right. Because, you know, for 20 years, we've been following this efficiency model. And yes, earnings per share are great, stockholder value, shareholder value has increased, but we've lost on innovation and productivity. Like he said, if I tell the guys in Hyderabad, this is exactly what I want you to do, they'll do it. But if I say, here's a problem, let's solve it, crickets. But an American engineer, rest of the world, they'll spitball ideas until they get out of the rut. So, Again, at both the worker level and the national level, the way these employment visas are being used is hurting us, and it needs to end. And there are solutions. Uh, the last six months of the Trump administration, we'd essentially defanged the H-1B visa program because we raised the special, we changed the definition of a specialty occupation, we raised the prevailing wage, and we ended the lottery. So if you wanted an H-1B visa worker, you got the one who got first dibs was the one prepared to pay the highest amount of money. So it ended the displacement of ordinary American workers. Thank you very much for your time.